0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the program today, we're going to talk about a significant... Investment being made in Citizen Detroit, which is the voter education group that was started by former city councilwoman Sheila Cockrell, uh, has really taken off and become an integral part of the way a lot of Detroiters learn about the issues that affect us here in the city and learn about what their role can be in changing things and making things better. So, you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. Also, always remember to go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. If you want to download and subscribe to Detroit Today, you can always listen to the show whenever you want. You don't have to listen during this live hour each day. Up front, we're going to talk about what happened 50 years ago this month when a commission appointed by President Lyndon B. Johnson issued a report that detailed the reasons and causes that led to the massive civil unrest in places like detroit and other cities the previous summer the kerner commission report detailed A pretty horrifying set of circumstances created by the white ruling class that oppressed black Americans to a breaking point. Segregation, poor housing conditions, inadequate employment and education, and an overall social and cultural structure built on racism helped inflame the tensions that led up to the rebellions or riots of 1967. The report was a warning of sorts. It was a list of ways that America needed to change or suffer indefinitely into the future. One of the biggest criticisms in the report was aimed at the media, which at that point was a wholly white establishment telling the stories of America through a white perspective. So where are we today, 50 years later? What has changed? What has not? And are those changes for the better? Or are they for the worst? That's where we start the conversation today. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, as always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So it's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today will work you into the conversation. And joining us to frame this issue is Farai Chidea. She is a longtime public radio personality, and she is the current jur- journalism program officer at the, found, the Ford Foundation. She's going to host the Foundation's event marking the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report on March 5th, next Monday, at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Farai, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. And back when I was uh, at News and Notes at NPR, you know, over a decade ago, we, you know, we had a content partnership with WDET. So I always respect uh, what this station stands for and how you're connected to the community. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's really great to have you here in town and great to have you here on the show. I thought we would uh, start by uh, listening to a quote or a, a piece of tape that I think will help us frame how the media we're viewing uh, the things like that happened here in the summer of 1967. Uh, there's a, this is a clip from an NBC special report from Detroit that summer.
2: There's a great temptation to become shrill about what happened here in Detroit in July. It's a temptation we wish to avoid. If it does not impress you with the absolute urgency of relieving that desperation then we will not have communicated what black America is trying to tell white America. For we believe that the greatest single need in America today is for communication between blacks and whites. But there can be no communication between minds closed by anger.
0: Okay, as you hear there, there's a certain earnestness that's, I think, very evident in that reporter's voice talking about the things that happen here. But you also hear kind of a distance, something uh, that I think was also characteristic of media coverage at that time. Somebody who maybe is not of the community that was involved in the rebellion and maybe not understanding all of the things that motivate. I think it's a good place to start the conversation, for I about what the media looked like then and Mm -hmm. what the media look like now and sort of where we are. Let's start with this idea of what newsrooms were like. 50 years ago, after the rebellions of 1967.
1: Yeah, well, well, uh, there are various estimates, basically from 1% of uh, newsroom employees at newspapers being black to 5% being black. Part of it was uh, that we didn't have the same diversity reporting that we do now. Uh, we'll, we can talk more about how well that reporting does and doesn't work. But basically, it, throughout the 1960s and, and early 70s, Um, you know, with uprising in Watts, uh, you know, in in California and Detroit, et cetera, you had people who had never seriously thought, newsroom managers who had never seriously thought about integration as part of newsroom excellence suddenly saying, oh, wow, we need black people Mm -hmm. to go out. Or also, we're afraid. (laughs) Like, we don't want to leave the office. (laughs) You know, I remember early in my career, it's very different. But I was like, why do I always have to go to Harlem? Like, Harlem is not... A war zone, you know, and it's like, yes, you do want reporters who can can relate to communities. But I think, you know, it's important for everyone to be able to go everywhere. But a lot of times the white newsroom managers didn't feel comfortable sending white reporters into black communities, but they didn't have any black reporters on staff
0: to go do it. Right. Right.
1: So it was a it was a it was a zeroed out game where there was just lack of coverage, lack of understanding. And the Kerner Commission report, I think, is very prescient. In the sense that it talked about equity, um, that people have a have a a legitimate need for representation in the media as part of being part of a democracy, right. and it's not just a feel-good thing or an I want to see my own people thing. It's like you legitimately, as a U.S. citizen, should have a right to adequate representation of your community. And also, the report went on later to say that both blacks and whites were cheated of good coverage during the civil rights era.
0: Yeah. Uh, When we think about what happened here in 67, I think there are a lot of folks uh, who, who of course, are still around who, who witnessed it. And it's really interesting to hear them describe what the media coverage was like then, but also the effect that it seemed to have on the event itself, that it made things worse. Yes. That you didn't have reporters who could be out among those people who were who were uh, rebelling, it, it it mattered that you didn't have people uh, who looked like the people who were involved, so that there was a, a sort of an instant trust, uh, given the the breakdown of trust between black and white that was taking place. I mean, it wasn't just that the coverage was inadequate; it was that the coverage helped fuel. Absolutely. This, this this awful incident that that happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it was of course a series of different moments in American history. In Detroit '67 was a prime reason for convening the Kerner Commission mm-hmm. report, but the irony, of course, is that the uh, administration rejected the findings of the Kerner Commission report, and then <laughs> Reverend King was assassinated in April. So we have to see this as part of an arc that includes. This, um, you know, the Kerner Commission report actually sold 2 million copies. It was a time when America wanted to understand, like, why are we here? Why are we at the precipice? Mm -hmm. And yet the government rejected this. uh, You know, there were ideas for a sort of Marshall Plan to revive urban areas and to provide more equality. And that's something that we've never really had either. You know, it's like and, and the point of our hosting an event, you know, through Ford here in Detroit. But just generally, the the point of so many people commemorating the Kerner Commission report is that it it was a bit of a Cassandra. Cassandra was a, a mythical figure who... Could see the future, but she could never convince people she was right. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was like, it's like, hey, I'm over here. I've got, I've got information. It's like, huh, what, what do you want? You know, so, so let's not, let's not pull a Cassandra again. Let's right. like, you know, let's actually pay attention.
0: Yeah, uh, this is Detroit today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Farai today, a longtime public radio personality and journalism program officer at the Ford Foundation. She is hosting that foundation's event that will mark the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report. That event is on March 5th at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History from 530 to 8 uh, p.m. We are talking about the role that media play in uh, America, the role that media played 50 years ago after the rebellion here in Detroit and in several other cities around America. The Kerner Commission Report cited the media as one of the problems, one of the accelerants, I guess you could say, that helped uh, make those events happen and a- also helped uh, helped sort of uh, divert us from some of the solutions that should have come out of those, uh, those incidents. Uh, we're talking about the difference between what it was like 50 years ago, what it was like now today, what it was like over that 50 years, uh, how much change has there been and has it mattered in terms of the way that people of color are covered, the way issues that affect people of color are covered in America. If you want to join the conversation, uh, tell us what you think the media's role was uh, 50 years ago in the rebellion here in 1967. Uh, Tell us what you think the media's role looks like now. How has media changed? How has the media landscape changed to reflect more diversity? Um, the number on the phones, as always, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. will work you into the conversation. Uh, Farai, let's talk about uh, the last 50 years first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like there are several different periods that are worth thinking about uh, in terms of how media changed. One is uh, is the era of the late 80s and early 90s right. when you and I were very young journalists sort of coming up uh, through the ranks. Uh, that was a time when I felt that mass media and the, the largest media corporations had perhaps the 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 most significant awareness of the need to diversify and that there were real significant efforts made to do that. I mean, there was a lot of hiring uh, that happened at that point. Um, Let's sort of start there and talk about uh, how much change that brought to the industry, how much change that brought to the coverage.
1: Yeah, so, so essentially the arc was you had events throughout the late 60s, including Detroit 67, the Kerner Commission report coming out in 68, its findings being rejected, uh, Reverend King being assassinated. And then journalists of color really took the commission report and, you know, the civil unrest around the country and said, we've got to organize. And so started organizing in newsrooms and then started founding the ethnic journalism associations we know today, Mm -hmm. Um, like NABJ was founded in the mid-70s and subsequently, you know, many of the other um, journalism affinity groups. And also, you know, you have... Uh, so much Detroit history in the evolution of media, like uh, the first uh, African-American-owned radio station Mm -hmm. right here in Detroit. WGPR. WGPR, (laughs) 1975. So by the time the 80s rolled around, people were in um, a moment of feeling extremely positive Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, yes, we're winning victories. We've taken the percentage of African-Americans in newsrooms from, you know, the low single digits up into the double digits, mm-hmm. and people started getting ambitious. Ambitious, and ASNE said we're going to reach racial parity in newsrooms by the year 2025. Right. And then, after you know, starting with the 90s, uh, there was this real kind of retrenchment and withdrawal from newsroom equity. Part of it was you know changing economics in the newsrooms, where a lot of managers were like, well, I have to focus on the bottom line. But my question has always been and remains, like, if we live in a country that is becoming exponentially more diverse, and you're basing your bottom line only on really trying to serve a white audience, how is that serving the bottom line? So people's, even people's attention, that's also one thing that we intend to really keep talking about, is that this construction of the bottom line has been often a bottom line only focused on some members of the community, not all. Yeah. So I think that there were some tactical errors made and also just a general pushback with every social movement, like with the civil rights era, then you saw a retrenchment. And this was, in some ways, it, it's, it was time shifted forward, but it was part of a larger you know, retrenchment on race in America. Yeah. Uh,
0: I also feel like that retrenchment in media circles was sort of a backroom, not openly discussed one and mm-hmm. you don't see Absolutely. people coming out saying well you know diversity doesn't matter they they continued the rhetoric uh, mm-hmm. along the lines of we need to be more diverse we need to be more inclusive but then the actions changed and there was something i, I don't know maybe insidious about that i think uh, the the idea that uh, you're talking about diversity, you're talking about inclusion, but you're not doing anything about
1: it. Oh, absolutely. And and there have been um, some, you know, Paul Delaney, who was one of the co-founders of NABJ, mm-hmm. wrote an article where he said, um, you know, our enthusiasm was high. Uh, we were on the right side of history. We were so naively optimistic back then. <laughs> and I thought that, that his framing of that, so he talks about specifically from his perspective at the New York Times, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, they did make a lot of advances in the 80s, but they also had veteran reporters who refused to train reporters of color because there was a there was a settlement for a a pending class action lawsuit, one for gender, one for race. And after those settlements, the women in the newsroom, the white women were generally I mean, trust me, you know, as as someone who is both a woman and black, there's plenty there's enough problems to go around with both race (laughs) and gender. But what he argues, and we've seen this in general with things like affirmative action programs when they apply to both women and people of color, is that the women were given, you know, sort of less grief for having pressed their agenda than the people of color. And some people just turned their backs. And so, you know, in the end, Delaney said um, to say that I'm disappointed today by the entire situation, not only at The New York Times, but in my chosen profession is an understatement. Um, however, truth be told, I'm not surprised at all. It's still a racial and racist thing. The nation cannot seem to take hold of nor shake after all these centuries. Wow. So he's really framing the retrenchment within newsrooms as part of America's, as we can see today, we, sure. we've, we haven't dealt with da- uh, race in a, in a holistic and, um, complete way, but I, I'm not a fatalist, but I just think that before we can move ahead, we have to acknowledge all the efforts of the people in mm-hmm, the past. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the founders of NABJ, all of the pioneering journalists here in Detroit um, who, who work to integrate the newsroom. But we have to acknowledge we're facing headwinds, and some people just don't really want um, power to be shared.
0: Yeah. Uh, again, 313 577 1019 as always is the number on the phones. Let's go to Paul in Oakland Township. Paul, welcome to Detroit today.
2: Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to make a comment about just prior to that 67 report that there was a, I don't even know if it exists anymore, an Office of Economic Opportunity. And back in 1966, the director, I think his name was Hyman Bookbinder, made a comment that was, that was pretty controversial at the time about long-range cost of, um, of getting rid of poverty would reach a trillion dollars. Um, But the poor, we could stop poor being poor if the rich were willing to get richer at a slower pace.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly.
2: But the cost of poverty now, isn't it reaching close to a trillion dollars a year?
0: Yeah. No, I think think you're right, Paul. That's it. Yeah, go ahead.
2: So, you know, it seems to me like this short-sightedness is costing you more in the long run, and yet no one still is willing to address these issues.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, also, I mean, I've been, um, you know, although I'm now in a role where I'm primarily working in a foundation context, I've been a reporter for over 25 years and covered six presidential elections, covered uh, things like white supremacy movements, you know, face to face and, and uh, you know, in various ways with active members of white supremacy movements, covered economics. And one of the things that I found fascinating, I got really deep into sort of the intersection of economic trends, trend lines and political trend lines mm-hmm. is that um, globally, not just in the U.S., that rising wealth inequality tends to track with the rise of authoritarianism and xenophobia. Mm-hmm. And so you see in Europe um, in some places where there's rising wealth inequality because they, they're not like America, but they have their own issues and, and their own form of wealth inequality is part of that. You see the rise of neo Nazi parties. Here in the US, we don't have, you know, there's a few like, you know, formal neo Nazis, but really you have in a two party system, you have a variety of views, but you see um, growing authoritarianism and xenophobia within our two party system. And so I definitely think that. You know, for example, in America, people are always saying, oh, my taxes are too high. Part of it is that our <laughs> services are too low. Yes. Like in many other countries, what you get when you pay your taxes is you get
0: good, Healthcare, good, good schools for your kids. Hey.
1: Yeah, um, you even <laughs> get things like creche. You know, you can you have a place to leave toddlers. A, a lot of the things that we have to pay for in America are paid for as part of being a tax paying citizen in other countries. That's and so right. in this country, our whole idea about... What is appropriate taxation? We, we know that taxation of the highest net worth Americans has dropped precipitously over time. I mean, it, there once used to be a 90 percent tax rate yes. um, on the highest bracket. And we've just seen another.
0: We've just you, taken it down again. Yeah, we've right? just seen
1: another cut. And and we're not balancing the budget, so all of this goes together. You know, when we underfund, before I came here, because I have a lot of friends in in the area, one of my friends said, "Don't don't end up in a ditch with your axle broken. Watch out for the potholes." <laughs> and that that could also be New York. It could be Baltimore, my hometown. It's like, where are our services? And and when people don't feel like, you know, they have a, a an economic future in America. That causes problems across the spectrum, you know, for it, 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 increases racial tensions. It increases, um, xenophobia and, and it pits us against each other. And we don't have to live like this, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue our conversation with Farai today about the state of things 50 years after the Kerner Commission report uh, don't forget uh, if you don't if you can't uh, listen to all of today's program you don't have to miss out just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts download and subscribe to Detroit Today you can take us with us with you and listen when you are ready stay with us and stay with us on the phones tell us where are we 50 years after the uprising fueled by racial inequality are we in a better place a more understanding place or inclusive or are the tensions that led to that rebellion still with us today we'll be right back on detroit today
2: WDET, bringing you culture and information that empowers our community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station.
0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Farai Chidea, a longtime public radio personality and journalism program officer at the Ford Foundation. She's going to host the Foundation's event marking the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report on March 5th at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. That takes place from 530 to 8 on March 5th. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, we are talking about 50 years after the Kerner Commission. Where are we? Where are we as a culture? Where are we with race and inclusion, understanding? Are we in a better place today than we were 50 years ago? Or are the tensions that led to a rebellion still with us today? Talk about how that Plays out here in Southeast Michigan, the things that you see in our community, uh, but also talk about it, how it plays out nationally, the conversations that we're having about race and diversity, the conversations we're having about immigration, for instance. How does that look 50 years after the Kerner Commission said that uh, America's history of race and racism uh, had created two separate and unequal worlds, one white, and one black. The number, as always on the phones, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, put your comments there, and you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. For I want to talk a little about uh, uh, your career uh, and how it reflects this sort of fits and starts of uh, mm-hmm. diversity uh, efforts. Uh, News and Notes was a show that you hosted uh, for NPR uh, that was canceled in 2009, quote, uh, due to budget constraints is what they said. But uh, Tell Me More, which was uh, Michelle Martin's program, uh, also was canceled in 2014, and they yep. cited budget concerns there. Uh, these kinds of one-step-forward a couple of steps back it, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's sort of the pattern that still plays out uh in media in mainstream media
1: oh absolutely I mean you know and um there's <laughs> I have so many stories one day when I'm uh well and truly retired I will write all of them down but one, <laughs> one that I recently brought brought up to another former NPR person which I will talk about here for the first time publicly is that um I had helped secure a small grant on behalf of News and Notes Mm -hmm. um, that was targeted to help us cover immigration from the perspective of how communities of color, diverse communities of color, deal with immigration. Usually it's framed as like, how do white people think about immigration? It's like, well, how do black people think about immigration (laughs) when all of a sudden there's, even if they're black people, like black people from America and then Africans and people from the Caribbean move in. And basically, we were cut out of the grant that I secured, you know, um, we were supposed to end up splitting it, which is common, you end up splitting it with the parent organization. But in this case, they scheduled the planning meetings, while I was on air for news and notes, and then later reported, we didn't fulfill the grant because news and notes didn't. And you know, at some point, when I write a memoir, it's like it's sometimes being in newsrooms feels like It's a cold war, you know, where you're constantly having to fight for respect and assets. And during this last election, when I worked for FiveThirtyEight, um, I blended quantitative and qualitative reporting. So Mm -hmm. data journalism with, you know, in-person interviews. And I don't believe that it had the same. um, It got the same shine internally as purely quantitative journalism. But after the fact... My reporting was the reporting that stood up because I had actually talked to people. Yeah. And I saw that black millennials were extremely soft on Clinton. I saw that evangelical Christians who really hated Trump at the beginning voted for him because they saw him as the only chance to um, you know, project, protect their agenda around the Supreme Court. So I feel that very often, whether it comes to financial resources or whether it comes to the appreciation of the lines of inquiry – by reporters of color, we are not given our due, and that impoverishes everything from election reporting to reporting on racial diversity. You know, um, so that so to me, it's like, you know. I think NPR actually has been very transparent of late. Mm-hmm. They've hired two women of color to help host two of their biggest shows.
0: Yes. Audie Carnish uh, is on All Things Considered. Yeah, but uh, they've
1: they've also uh, hired Noel King. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've hired a couple more people who uh-huh. are just coming online. And so I do think that it's not the same company I worked for. You also have to remember every you know every place you work changes. <laughs> but but overall, my my history in journalism has been negotiating power in newsrooms. You know, yeah. I never went in there. I was, I so many people helped me. And in fact, my mentor, my first mentor was a white man, um, Mark Starr, who started a diversity program because, just because he wanted to. Yeah. He didn't get a lot of um, respect from his peers initially, because they were like, why are you doing this? But so we we can't make this just a, you know, us and them thing. Sure. I, I think it is an us and them thing, but the us is, us who are committed to diversity and them who are not who
0: are not so yes.
1: let's be clear that there there are people who can fall into every camp but there has not always been a commitment to diversity yeah.
0: I, I wonder what you make uh, as a as someone who was at npr um of uh, phenomenons like code switch which yeah. is is a really different iteration of the commitment to uh, you know diverse voices uh, in in some ways it's a really refreshing uh, development at NPR I, I love mm-hmm. I love code switch uh, at the same time I I worry about whether whether and how that has an effect on the diversity of its day-to-day coverage of news right Yeah uh, code switch is its own thing absolutely uh, is that is that enough is that uh, is that having the influence over you know, Daily coverage uh, uh, of, of the news at, at an organization like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I deeply um, appreciate Code Switch, as I'm sure you do. But as you point out, there's a difference between news that is sort of, and it, you know, even the like the New York Times, for example, started sort of a, a race-related mm-hmm. cluster. There's a difference between that and putting um, people of color into positions where they are just seen as the mainstream newsroom journalist. And I think you need both. You know, first of all, I think that we have to reconsider the notion of objectivity, which has been used to exclude uh, people of color from newsroom decision-making, because it's like, oh, you're too biased about that. It's like, well, since did since when did white people become objective about race? Like, you think about dating all the way back to um, Ida B. Wells covering lynchings in the 1890s, mm-hmm. when you know, lynchings were seen as a social event where you could bring your kids. And so she had to remedy for the failings of, quote, objective journalism, which just simply didn't cover lynchings. Or if it did, it was like, good, that guy got what he deserved. Right. And then in the 1960s, with the civil rights era, you saw um, journalists of color having to try to backfill for the failings of the so-called objective Media, So I think that you need both like you need a code switch that can go deep into analysis from a multi ethnic perspective. And you also need um, people of color who are, um, you know, like Gwen Ifill, the dearly departed Gwen Ifill. I I could not miss her more, you know, a steady hand. Um, She got a N word go home note at her first job at a newspaper in Boston. right, And instead of uh, you know getting scared off, she doubled down. But she was a very you know mainstream journalist who could talk to anyone. So you need both you know, the future Gwen Ifills and you need Code Switch. Yeah.
0: Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. So it's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. John, on the east side, you're up next on Detroit Today. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead.
3: So I I just want to bring up two things. Uh, One, the costs that are still associated with this, paid for by all. And by that, I mean the urban sprawl and the – let's just take a look at the road situation. We don't have money to pay for roads because people are fleeing still today to get away from something they fear. And The other thing I want to talk about is the reveal program on Redlining last Mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. uh, If that didn't wake people up to understand that this is still a present day thing, I mean, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. I know about 10 or 15 years ago, there was a big issue with uh, some area real estate agents that were fined pretty heavily for diverting people of color to areas that are more suitable for them. Mm -hmm. This was quote unquote, but they were, they were just fine. But how how can this still be going on? And when are we going to get across everybody that the cost associated with this, are hurting everybody, and it's just not working out. Yeah,
0: John, great, uh, great yeah. question, great comments. So, so Farai, yeah. you spent uh, a, a lot of the 2016 presidential uh, campaign out, as you as you point out, talking to people, talking to Trump voters mm-hmm. uh, about what they were excited about, what they were thinking about in the country. You know, I'm always curious, uh, folks who have face time with uh, the, with the president's supporters. How do they see these issues, things like redlining, things like segregation, uh, the things that are still with us that really affect people's lives and at the same time, for them, don't resonate uh, in quite the same way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, I mean, one of the things I've loved about being a reporter is being able to get so many different perspectives. So not every Clinton voter or Trump voter was the same as, as other people who voted for the candidate. So, for example, in one case I interviewed... An evangelical Christian couple who had actually been very active in trying to improve race relations in their area in South Carolina, and I think that they knew that 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 it was, to say the least, a risk to vote for candidate Trump, but they privileged, um, you know, their desire to fight for the end of abortion above their work on race. In other cases, there were people I interviewed who definitely had suspect racial um, politics and and people who had to face it. One of the most moving interviews I did was with a woman who is white, married to a man who's black and, and Mexican in origin, and they have a kid. And she lives in the Las Vegas area, and people repeatedly told her to vote for Donald Trump to prevent the dilution of the white race which is something that she already did by having a multiracial child. And so I said, what did you do about it? And she said, well, if it was a business context, I had to, you know, keep my lips locked and just seal the deal. And if it was social, I would chew people out. But we have to realize there was everything from a sort of sadness, like, oh, I can't really serve a racial equality agenda if I'm serving other things I care about, to really straight on, like, you know, I'm here to protect the dominance of whiteness. But there's... It wasn't like everyone was on the same page. Hmm. But something that I want to point out is that um, think about the mortgage crisis. Black and brown families were the first targeted for these subprime mortgages, yeah. even when they qualified for regular mortgages. If we had done adequate reporting on communities of color, we could have prevented arguably the entire mortgage, you know, yeah, we, we could have. And so Kai Wright, who's a who's a broadcaster Mm -hmm. in New York his parents lost their home you know they were qualified for conventional mortgage but they were steered into subprime and if we empower reporters of color to truly be partners in the newsroom then we can spot these trends earlier and that will save white people money and angst as well as everybody
0: else yeah yeah uh John again thanks very much for the call and the comments let's go to Karen in Detroit Karen welcome to Detroit today
4: uh Thank you for uh, taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, I wondered if your guest could comment on the Kerner Commission's report as it relates to media coverage, I think it was their fifth chapter, and it said one of the findings um, for 67 Uprisings was the fact that uh, reporters reported from a white perspective because you did not have a lot of African Americans obviously at that time in any numbers in
0: newsrooms
4: and therefore the uprisings were covered from a white perspective
1: and
4: has that that, that perspective
2: changed among all reporters black and white. That's yeah. my question.
1: Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we did is that Ford commissioned a poll and these, you know, one of the, the major recommendations of what you're talking about from the Kerner Commission report was hiring more people of color in the media. And in our poll, we found that a majority of Americans overall said that hiring, quote, hiring more racial minorities in the news media as reporters and editors would improve the quality of the news. Mm-hmm. And that varied from 50 percent of white white people who were white Americans who were polled to 71 percent of blacks with um, you know, Latinos and Asian Americans falling in a range in between that. But still, a majority of all races say an integrated newsroom would help improve the news. Mm-hmm. And so so what you're bringing up um, is not, you know, it was very much called out in, in the Kerner Commission report as, you know, the lack of integration has impoverished whites trying to understand democracy, trying to understand civil disorder. And right now, We are in a country that's going through what I would argue is a pretty straightforward culture war. You know, there's, you know, um, in a culture war environment, people stop listening to rational arguments the same way that they used to. They
0: stop listening to to each other.
1: Yes, they stop listening to each other. There's huge amounts of mistrust of civil society broadly. And, you know, it's not that integrating the newsrooms will solve everything, but that— you know, I also believe, for example, that the Kerner frame around adequate representation does apply to, for example, rural whites uh-huh. who are very rarely seen um, in media, except if it's like, you know, there's a few genres: tragic farm story, right. yeah. racist white person in the in the in the, hit, in <laughs> With the sticks, the you know what? Flag on yeah, I exactly. There's like you know five narratives for rural <laughs> whites, and so I think I think that you know even some white Americans have a stake in these. Framing, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, Karen, thanks for the call and the questions. Let's go to Melissa on the east side. Melissa, welcome to Detroit today.
4: Hi, thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Um, first, right, and and Stephen, I want to say thank you so much for for this conversation. Um, I have always loved uh, NPR because of the type of reporting that that you get, and especially in this age of you know being woke and being aware of of, of privilege. I'm you know, a white girl who lives uh, at at the area of Rosa Parks in Claremont, oh, wow. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, and it's definitely a a it's it, it's hard in a city that is you know eighty percent um, black and and to get into some of these conversations um, without seeming like I'm asking somebody to be the, you know, poster child for their race mm-hmm. and to learn more about what it is that I should be asking. Um, because there is that genuine curiosity, but I think that there there's also uh, the opportunity to, to get that message out in, in a way that's digestible and understandable and has historical context. And you just don't get that in the, you know, top of the hour headlines. Huh. Um, and so I just want to thank you for these con- type of conversations.
0: Um, uh, yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad you called and, yeah. and, and and said that. I mean, that's one of the things we try really hard on this show to, to make a part of uh, the conversation in addition to lots of other things, of course. Uh, but to focus on uh, race and inequality and diversity and and those those issues um you know it, it is it is i think unfortunate that that there isn't more coverage of that although i i will say for i i see more of it now yeah. than i think i did even 5 years ago or 10 years ago
1: well i think that because our civil society is in such obvious distress you know people are responding Um, and, and also as to the question of how do you talk to people about race, you know, when you don't, I mean, even for me as a reporter, you know, I can ask anyone anything and have found different ways to communicate with people, but first you have to make a little chit chat. Like, you know, for example, (laughs) when, when I go places where I know people are suspicious of reporters, um, one of my, you know, best assets is, is often like, let's meet in a coffee shop. That's let's right. have, let's have, you know, some coffee, a <laughs> slice of pie. We talk about nothing for 20 right. minutes, you know, <laughs> let's talk about your grandkids. So, so when it comes to, for example, being, um, I live in a predominantly black and of color neighborhood where a lot of white Americans are moving, uh, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I've become really good friends with a bunch of different neighbors, you know, of different races. And, it's it's really about like just spending that time getting to know someone before you, you know, pepper them with questions. Yeah. So it's all about community. And I think also we have to rediscover um, how to build community in a time of strife and mistrust.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a, it's about that human connection, getting people to see that first and then getting to these other. Exactly. These other issues. OK, Farai Chadeh, a longtime public radio personality and journalism program officer at Ford Foundation. Thanks for being here on Detroit Today.
1: Stephen, thank you so much. And thanks WDET for everything you do. Yeah,
0: And remember, March 5th at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Ford Foundation's event marking the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission Report. That is 5.30 to 8 p.m. on March 5th. Up next, our political season of campaigning and lobbying for your vote is about to kick into high gear. We'll talk about efforts to keep you informed about what you're voting on next. Stay with us on Detroit Today.